back for another episode of MFA Writers. I'm thrilled to have you here and excited for you to hear this fun episode with Luna Adler of Brooklyn College. This one was requested by Marsha Bronstein, who sent us a lovely email a while back. Thank you for listening, Marsha. I hope you enjoy the conversation. After today, we have one episode left in Season 2 before we gear up for Season 3, so now would be a great time to send us any requests you have. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on Season 3, please go to mfawriters.com and apply. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter as well as mfawriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at mfawriterspodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Luna Adler a Brooklyn-based writer and illustrator. Her words, art, and comics have appeared or are forthcoming in Bon Appetit, Bust Magazine, Interview Magazine, Literary Hub, Gossamer, Auto Straddle, Electric Literature, Backpacker Magazine, The Rumpus, The Belladonna Comedy, Hobart Pulp, and Lux Magazine, among others. She's currently an MFA candidate in fiction at Brooklyn College, where she was a recipient of the Truman Capote Fellowship. She is a fiction editor for the Brooklyn Review and a reader for Pigeon Pages. Today, she's going to read an excerpt from an essay she wrote for Backpacker Magazine. I learned the basics of bear trapping at age eight when I attended a week-long junior ranger camp. The experience took place at a state park on the eastern seaboard and was led by park ranger Dan Danners, whose name has been changed but whose pseudonym resembles the original in both style and structure. Danners was an extremely enthusiastic yet accident-prone ranger who had, for reasons that remain a mystery to me, been trusted with teaching a group of small children wilderness safety and survival skills. After a week of activities in which we would check off basic objectives like hiking, water sports, and bear safety skills, we would supposedly earn our junior ranger badges. My godmother drove her son Max and me to the campground, where Ranger Danners introduced himself, shaking the parents' hands and saying hello to us wannabe rangers. I remember him as rotund, grizzled, and whiskery, but like nearly everything about the week, it's possible that my memory is skewed by the fact that I was a very small child. The campers and parents pitched our tents, grilled hot dogs, and gathered round the fire. Then Ranger Danners settled back in his canvas chair and proceeded to relay a ghost story so grisly, disturbing, and wholly inappropriate that a parent had to step in and cut the festivities short. This is the worst thing I've ever heard, I remember thinking, and promptly repressed the entire tale. But Max did not. It was the one about the sleeping bags that consume children, he said when I called him recently, as if he'd been waiting 21 years for me to ask this very question. The yarn ended with a pile of children's carcasses entombed in sleeping bags in deep Appalachia, bones picked clean of meat. While I hadn't remembered the story, I do recall not being able to sleep, not because we refused to crawl into our sleeping bags or because the ground was hard, although we did and it was, but because half of us were sobbing and the other half were listening to them sob. The next day, Excited to officially begin our junior ranger journey, we bid our parents goodbye and set off after Ranger Danners. 
we would start by learning hiking skills. Good idea, Danner said when one of the aspiring junior rangers took off his shoes. I like to hike barefoot too. We followed Danners through a meadow filled with elderberry, bee balm, and yarrow, past a clump of rhododendrons and tulip poplars, and over a slapdash footbridge. Then we heard a cry. The barefoot kid was sitting on the ground beside something sharp. A rock, a piece of glass, a rusty nail. I don't remember, but there was blood trickling from his foot. Danners began rooting around in his backpack for his first aid kit. It wasn't there. He patted his many pockets but came up empty. Okay, kids, plan B. Looking at the child, who was growing increasingly pale, Danners instructed us to search the woods for comfrey, a medicinal plant he had no photo of and wasn't able to describe very well. We were late coming back. Danners carried our injured comrade, his foot bandaged chaotically with leaves. Just a little mishap, said Danners, placing the boy on the ground. His mother rushed over. Better luck tomorrow. The following morning, Ranger Danners surfaced 30 minutes late looking haggard. Today, he said, we would be paddling out on the lake to learn about water safety. It was a lovely day, and I remember feeling optimistic. Maybe things would start to get better. As we neared the middle of the lake, three to a canoe, thunderheads appeared. The weather report did call for fierce thunderstorms, he admitted, as sheets of rain descended and the water grew choppy. But what do they know? When the first bolt of lightning flickered, we were well past the halfway point. Too dangerous to turn around now, said our slightly too fearless leader. By noon, we were trapped on the far side of the lake, our canoes lined up along a near vertical embankment with no discernible docking area, floating above a dam several dozen feet high while a lightning storm raged. Ranger Danners extracted a piece of rope from his canoe, tied it to a flimsy-looking root sticking out of the bank, and encouraged one child from each canoe to hold onto it. So we don't go over, he said, as if not going over the dam wasn't all we could think about. That evening, after we'd eventually managed to dock and the Park Service's emergency van had collected us, I overheard two of the parents whispering. Just one more day, one of them said. Hopefully everyone gets through it okay. Our last lesson, it turned out, would be the strangest yet. Ranger Danners was three hours late to pick us up on the final day of junior ranger camp. When he eventually materialized, carrying a McDonald's bag and looking like he'd crawled through a sandstorm, he said it would be a very chill final day. Just a little lesson on bear safety. The parents looked relieved, no doubt imagining a picnic-style lunch accompanied by a lecture on the merits of bear spray. Carrying our lunchboxes, we followed Ranger Danners into the woods. We were in high spirits. Bear safety was the last learning objective before we became junior rangers. Then it would have all been worth it. We entered a clearing and Ranger Danners announced that today we were going to capture a bear. The plan was to create a shallow pit, bait it, and cover it with leaves and twigs. Ideally, Danner said, the bear would step in the hole, twist its ankle, and, well, honestly, there wasn't much of a plan after that. Better get digging, he said, as he extracted his Big Mac and shooed us away. Hopefully it'll be a mama bear with cubs. Looking back, I think it's possible that Danners just wanted to occupy us so he could eat his burger in peace, but I can't say for sure. Becoming an adult myself hasn't brought me any closer to understanding this man's thought process. All I know is that we put our lunches aside and set to work making a shallow pit. When we were done, Danners placed the remainder of his Big Mac inside and covered it with foliage. Run, he said, and we sprinted to the hickory trees, ringing the clearing, diving behind them to wait. Luna, that was great. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. And thanks for stopping by to talk to me. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So you're a writer and illustrator who's focusing on fiction in the MFA program. But the piece you read in most of your published work is nonfiction. So when did you first start writing? And was there a genre you were drawn to at first? Or were you always writing in various genres? Yeah. Um, 
I have always loved stories and I've always loved storytelling. Um, I would often make up stories when I was little, like before I could read. I was a really late reader. Like everyone tried to teach me how to sound out words and I just could not get it for like literally for years. Um, and my little sister started reading. She was like over four years younger than me. She started reading before me and I was like, God, I got to figure this out. <laughs> um, and so I eventually did start reading and loved it. I was completely obsessed and like couldn't stop reading and really haven't stopped since. But yeah, ever since I was like able to actually put words on paper, I feel like I've been writing some sort of something. Um, and it was a lot of like very prosy, poemy kinds of fragmentary things, I think, when I was younger. And then short stories, maybe in high school. And then I feel like I got really interested in personal essays and creative nonfiction late high school, early college, um, and started to focus on that like a little bit more after I graduated from undergrad. Yeah, I, I took a lot of creative writing classes in college, but I was an anthro major and I was doing a lot of like film documentary filmmaking. I was really interested in that. I was illustrating and I was writing, but like I was always focusing on telling people's stories. That was always the thing I was the most interested in. And so I felt like anthropology was like an interesting major to learn how to tell people's stories. So I kind of focused on that in college, um, as opposed to like being an English major and like really knowing the canon. Um, and I loved it. I thought it was so interesting. And I guess I've kind of let that guide me since. So nowadays, like when you have an idea for a story, like how do you decide whether it's going to be fiction or whether it's going to be nonfiction or whether it's going to be in some other kind of form? I feel like sometimes it just feels very clear to me, like this is a thing that happened and I want to record it as true to life as possible. Sometimes there's like a detail of something that I observe or someone's telling me a story and I'm like, wow, that detail is like so amazing. I want it to be in a story I wrote, but it's not, I'd like it to be in a fictional story. Yeah, right. One of the things that's funny about writing nonfiction versus fiction is that I think a lot of people think like the nonfiction is like more vulnerable or more exposing. But I also often find that like the fiction is the thing that feel, feels more vulnerable because you're not really delineating what is from your life and what isn't. So people make a lot of assumptions about like where you're getting it from when it might not actually be your own, your own story. I always ask these questions and then immediately feel bad asking them because they're kind of impossible questions to answer, right? <laughs> I mean, I feel like process is such like an amorphous thing and it's so hard to just like explain it yeah. to say like, oh, this is like exactly how I decide whether it should be a fiction story or a nonfiction story. And often it's like intuition, right? Like you start writing, at least it is for me. I don't want to say that I know process is also very different for each person, but I find that like, I'll have an idea and I might think it's going to be in a certain form. But once I start writing it, like it becomes clear somehow, like I intuit that it needs to be in another form. Do you have the same experience? Yeah, I totally get that. I also, I feel like I like to joke that I don't have like a very, I have a kind of tenuous grasp on reality. So often like <laughs> I'll be writing something and I'll be like, oh, like I, like maybe I think I'm starting out with something that's nonfiction, but by the time I'm done, I'm kind of like, I don't, I think these things happen, but I've like retold myself the story so many times that I'm pretty sure I'm adding in things that maybe aren't completely true. Right. So it's, I feel like it's always a mix. I mean, memory is fiction in a lot of ways, right? I mean, the way we remember things is not often the way that they actually happen. So, so yeah, I mean, I feel like th there's another conversation that we can have that I think people have been having forever, which is like, what is the difference between fiction and nonfiction? Is there a difference? And when you're writing, 
do you ever try to work across those boundaries in like the same piece? I feel like when I work across them, it's, I mean, I have, I have one piece that I've been working on for a long time and it started out as an essay. And at some point I really wanted to take it in a different direction. So I tried to rewrite it as fiction and um, I don't feel like I've really figured out how to tell the story. It's kind of in a liminal space between the two at the moment. And I think like, that's fine, but I'm going <laughs> to have to figure it out a little bit more before it can be done. Like it needs, it needs to go in one direction more specifically, but yeah, I feel like, I mean, well, okay. So for the, like for the essay, I just read the beginning of it, like that happened 21 years ago um, when I was eight and I have like very distinct memories of junior ranger camp and being terrified and being on this lake and having a lightning storm roll in. Um, and a lot of things I wasn't even able to include, but I'm not totally sure about everything that happened. And, you know, I, I called my mom who wasn't there. Like I, she'd sent me with my godmother and I was like, do you remember me talking about these things? And then I called my godmother and we had a long conversation. And then I called Max, my friend who I mentioned in the essay and we all remember different things. And there are some things we're able to back up and there's some things we're not. And like, you know, I went on to the website of this junior ranger camp and tried to see like what their actual objectives were. Because at this point, it's like very blurry to me what they were even trying to teach us. But at this point, I'm like, yeah, it's creative nonfiction. It's, you know, it's what I remember. It's what other people remember. There are details in there that when Max told me them, I was like, oh, I think that happened. But I'm only I'm I'm corroborating a memory that I don't have. Right. I mean, I almost exclusively write fiction, but it's interesting because sometimes, a lot of times maybe, my stories will start with something that happened in my life, some memory that I have or some feeling that I remember from a time in my life, and then like I'll build a fictional story around that. But that's starting from a place of nonfiction, right, and then moving towards fiction. So you mentioned that you're working on a story now that like you – you're kind of in that liminal space between fiction and nonfiction. You don't know what it's going to be or what it wants to be. How do you navigate that space? Like from, from just like a process standpoint, like does that scare you to be in that space? Does it like intimidate you? Are you like dreading working on that piece or have you gotten to a point where you feel comfortable being in that kind of unknown space and like letting the piece kind of figure it out over time? I mean, I spend a lot of time putting things away and trying not to think about it too much and then coming back to it with fresh eyes. And like, that's what I'm doing with that piece right now. So I don't know what's going to happen with that. I think our fiction processes are really different. Like when I sit down to write a story, it rarely is something that's happened to me. It's usually more like language based where I'm like really interested in tone or rhythm or like some sort of way a character is speaking. And like I build from that. I sometimes I feel like a little bit jealous because sometimes I'm like, wow, I wish I could start with something that happened to me and then build on that and make it into, you know, fiction or auto fiction. But when I try to write fiction and base it on something that is actually real or true to my life, I find that like my imagination gets completely stumped. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I feel like that's very, actually, it's very different parts of my brain that I try to access when I'm working on fiction versus nonfiction. And I think that's why I'm having so much trouble with the story that has like traversed multiple right. genres at this point. I like what you said about um, putting a piece away and like trying to kind of forget about it and not think about it for a while and then come back to it with fresh eyes, because I think that that is super useful for me as well. I'm curious though, how that 
meshed with being in an MFA program. We'll talk more about the MFA program later, but I found that because of like the deadlines of the MFA program and having to produce and having to turn things in for workshop and then having the next deadline to worry about and having the thesis looming over me at the end, that sometimes I felt like I didn't have the time to just put things away and forget about them. I had to like finish them, you know? Yeah. How did you navigate that? (laughs) Um, So we, we have one workshop every semester and we usually turn in three stories per workshop. Um, and the only exception to that is that there's a novel class that you can take if you want, and you're just turning in either a full manuscript or as much as you have, and then you submit again further along the semester. So I was able to produce new things and then put them away for a long time for the workshops until I got to my thesis, which is takes place like over the entire second year, and you have a different advisor each semester. Um, and it's pretty loose. Like You can do whatever you want as long as you're working on revisions. And yeah, I felt like I got, you know, some really good notes from my advisors. I really liked my advisors. They were really good readers. And I I was able to revise, but I don't think I was able to revise to the extent that I would want to be able to revise on those stories. And I think that's just because I need to put them away for six months, you know, and like, that's what I'm planning to do with all of them. They're like, not, I'm not excited about all of them, but the ones I am excited about, I'm not going to look at them for a good six months before I start working on them again. Yeah, I had that exact same experience. I think I originally went into the thesis or into the program thinking about the thesis like, oh, it's going to be like this finished product (laughs) that I'm going to be super happy (laughs) with, right? And then because of just like the time crunch and like you said, like not being able to fully approach the stories from a process standpoint in the way that I would normally because I had the deadlines I had to meet. Because of that, the the stories feel unfinished to me in some way. And I, I I feel the same way. Like they just need to go away for a while and then I'll return to them and, and figure them out. Yeah. There's this thing we my one of my professors, um, program directors, Josh Hankin, who's really amazing. Um, he taught my workshop this last semester and he was telling us like there's all these different forms of time in writing. And we had this joke that we also have workshop time, which is like when you just turn something in because you have to turn it in and it's it's like none of the problems are really problems that you can't solve. You can solve all of them, but you're writing on workshop time. So yeah, there was a lot of that. Well, before the interview, you told me that you have many, many different ways that you gather inspiration. And I always find it interesting to hear about how people get ideas for their stories. So what are some of the ways that you find stories coming to you? Just in terms of like being inspired to write, I listen do you know the long form podcast yeah the journalism yeah. podcast yeah I listen to that a lot I really I re-listen to a lot of my favorite episodes and that generally just like gets me inspired to write just learning about other writers who I admire and like what their process is and how they approach craft so, so if I just need to like get into the headspace of like wanting to create something I'll listen to that um I do a lot of brainstorming while I'm like taking long walks and going on bike rides and I feel like sometimes when I'm like writing, really, I'm just cleaning my apartment over and over again. And like, (laughs) you can tell how much I'm trying to write by how clean my apartment is. (laughs) It's been during my thesis, like the last few weeks of my thesis, my apartment was just so clean. So I do a lot of that. And like, I tell myself stories. Like if I think there's something I might want to write about, I'll tell it to myself in my head and try to figure out how I tell it if I was telling it to a friend or whatever. Um, or sometimes I will call a friend and like tell them that story and see what they're reacting to and what they think is interesting. And I also, I have a lot of friends who work in storytelling in different mediums. So like I have a lot of podcast producer friends and songwriting friends and like video editor friends. 
And sometimes I feel like if I'm really stuck, especially when I'm writing fiction, like on a story and I can tell them the story and they can be like, Oh, like this part's really interesting or this, you know, what if you incorporated this or like, what if this happened? Sometimes I find it's actually more helpful to talk to someone who isn't a fiction writer because they're able, like, I feel like we get caught caught in the weeds a lot when we're like really talking. Um, But like when I talk to, you know, people who do interdisciplinary storytelling forms, like it can be really helpful just to kind of take a step back and look at it as a story and not be so precious about language and everything. I I love also just the idea of cleaning, getting the juices flowing. I'm the same way because, you know, and I've talked about this on the podcast, I think before, sometimes like my best ideas for stories or like if I'm stuck on a story, my, my way out those ideas will come to me while I'm doing some kind of rote activity, like cleaning in which like my body is busy, but my mind is just wandering or showering is another thing, washing dishes, like that kind of stuff. It like frees up some part of my brain to Mm -hmm. like imagine and, and like work something out. Like my subconscious is able to do work because, because my body is busy. Right. Yeah. Um, and you referred to that as writing time. Yeah. Cleaning your house is writing time. So tell me about that. Like, how do we define writing time? I need to say the caveat is that part of, so Josh Henkin, the program director who taught my last workshop, he has us record our hours. Um, And when I'm recording hours for him, that is not writing time. I don't count that. Uh So I need to say say that's not writing time. But I do, I do think that's like, it does count as writing time to me. And I also think like a lot of the, like my side hustle jobs, I try to make them things that are like more physical where I can like turn my brain off and think. I spent a lot of time, like a year and a half working for an artist um, doing like large scale installation and like printmaking work after college. And I feel like I got so many ideas while I was doing that because I had 10 hours where I was just doing like intricate, you know, hand painting work or whatever. Um, and that was like so helpful to have that as the counterpart to actually sitting down in front of my computer and trying to put things down. And I mean, when I'm walking down the street and trying to brainstorm, like I'll stop and I'll record a voice memo or I'll like email myself a line. And sometimes like if I'm really stuck and I go for a walk, I'll come back with like, you know, 10 emails and I'll solve the problem. And I feel like, you know, that should count. Yeah, I I know everyone's writing process is different, but for me, I can't, I'm not sure that I would be able to like produce really good work if my day job was also related to writing, because I think it is important for me anyway, to like get away from it and to do something completely different and to do something physical, especially, um, seems to just get my juices flowing in a way that like being on a computer all day, like (laughs) stunts my writing, you know? Yeah. I feel like babysitting is like one of the things I've done over the years. And I remember being in like edits for an essay that I was working on and the baby was like napping in the carriage and I was sitting there like kind of like pushing her so she didn't wake up. And I got into this point with this essay, it was pretty short and to the point where like I'd memorized the whole thing pretty much because I just like looked over it so many times trying to make it work. And I was just like pushing it and just trying to edit it in my head and like I don't know. It's so helpful. It's so great. Like that's, that's often how I do edit things. You mentioned that you have to record your writing hours for a professor. Was this just like one semester or was it like your entire time in the program? Because that's a super interesting idea that I haven't heard other MFA programs doing. 
Yeah. Well, since it's the program director's thing, there are other instructors who also ask you to do that, but I didn't, he's the only one who I had who asked me to do that. And you're supposed to do, you're supposed to aim for 18 hours a week, which is three hours a day with one day off. Um, but you can fit it in however you want. It doesn't have to be that. And one thing I really appreciated was that we would all come to workshop and write down our hours on a piece of paper and turn it in without our names on it. So he would average it out and he'd be like, okay, you're, you know, we're at 12 and we should be higher. Um, he was always like, can we just get one week where we hit an average of 18, please? Um, (laughs) and like when we weren't hitting it, he would be like, okay, like what if you started writing on the train? Like that would add 30 minutes of writing time per day. But yeah, I've never, I've never recorded writing time before. Sometimes I've done word counts, but I've never recorded. I've never done writing time until this semester. Um, I also tend to write in like very short bursts with a lot of breaks. So when I am recording it, I have like a sticky note and I'm like, you know, 110 to 115, like 145 to do. And then like, I have to like add it up at the end of the day. And I feel like completely unhinged, but it is nice. Like, it's nice to see how many hours you're actually devoting to fiction every week. Um, And I think it was a lot more than it would have been if I hadn't known that I had to go in and write that number on a sticky note. So in what ways do you think that process and just being in the MFA program in general has changed your writing and your writing process? Um, I think one of the things about this program that's, you know, different than maybe going to like a fully funded program where they give you a stipend um, is that most people are working while they're in the program. Um, Some people are working full-time, some people are freelancing or working part-time, but almost everyone has some sort of other thing that takes up a lot of their time. And I mean, that can be a downside, but it also really forces you to figure out how you're going to fit writing into your life in like a long-term sustainable way where it's not just like a really beautiful two-year break from life. And I think I was already freelancing. I was already trying to fit writing in in different ways, but having that much, having like a whole group of people who are trying to figure this out together was really helpful. And I think, yeah, I think one of the things I'm leaving the program with is like much more of an understanding of when in the day I like to write fiction, what needs to happen for me to write fiction by the end of the day, when I need breaks, when it's like a good time to take a couple days away from something and just how to have a life and be a writer at the same time. I think that that's been a huge thing that the program's given me. I think that's a really important lesson for all of us to learn in an MFA program. I think it's a big part of MFA programs. This is try to like give you a chance to figure out how you're going to fit writing into your life once you're not in the program. So what about your writing though? I mean, like, so you read nonfiction for us, but I'm curious to hear you describe what your fiction is like and how that's changed since you've been in the program. I think I started out writing a lot of very muted kind of melancholy stories, which was like what I thought a short story was. Uh, That was what I applied to the program with. And that was kind of what I was grappling with the first semester. And then towards the end of the first semester, I felt like I wasn't, it wasn't quite, quite clicking, like what I wanted to do, what I was trying to do. And my workshop instructor was like, it's going to click. You just have to keep trying, keep figuring it out. And then towards the end of the semester, I wrote this kind of like totally unhinged uh, story about a physics uh, prodigy in Scotland. And like, you know, I just had a lot of fun with it. And I started to play with writing in a more like absurd, heightened, kind of like technicolor way. I was like, oh, this is really fun. And then 
that was kind of the, the direction my writing took for the rest of the program. And that's something I've been trying to figure out where there's like a lot of emphasis on language and things aren't, they're not magical, but they're not quite of this world. Um, and that's the thing that feels like the most alive and interesting and exciting to me. And one of the things I've been really trying to figure out this last semester is how to do that without getting too absorbed in the language or like the quirkiness of the world. Um, I think a lot of the time I'll like write dialogue and I'll be like, oh, this is like fun. And then, you know, it's like snappy or whatever, but it's not necessarily like what a character who's having emotions would be saying in this situation. Right. So trying to find that balance there. Yeah. Trying to write not just from like a language place, but also from a character place. Um, it's definitely not something I figured out yet, but it's something I'm like trying to figure out. And I've been trying to read writers who do it really well and figure out how they do it. Well, that brings me to another question then, like how important do you think reading is to your writing process? I think it's so important. Yeah. I, there's so many, I mean, whenever I'm stuck, I go back to like, there are certain essays or short stories I'll just read over and over again to just try to figure out like how they're doing the thing that they're doing. Um, or just to get me excited again about language or trying to communicate through language. During the program, there's a lot of, you take a literature elective every semester. Um, so I've been reading a lot of assigned reading, but I'm like really excited now that the program's pretty much over to go back to reading for pleasure again. But I, I've been introduced to like so many amazing writers through this program too. But yeah, I definitely, I know some people are like, no, I don't like to read anything while I'm writing. And I really, I don't know, that just feels like that would feel really sad to me, I think. I also find it helpful for like inspiration purposes. Like, you know, you mentioned the long form podcast that'll kind of inspire you in some ways. There are like certain short, short stories and collections and books that I'll return to over and over again if I'm feeling stuck or uninspired and it'll jog something. And I also am really looking forward to the post MFA reading life. I wonder if this is just like a normal experience for MFA people. It's like we spend all this time in the program writing and reading, but I don't feel like I've gotten to just read for pleasure in so long that like, I can't wait to do that now that I'm done with the program. I know. I was sitting here the other day and I was like, do I even remember how to do that? Like, I'm not sure. I think I do. I think I do. How do I read a story and just enjoy it and (laughs) not like be dissecting it and thinking about my own stories at the same time? Right. Yeah. Who is the story between? What's the occasion for the telling? Like, these are all the things that I feel like I'm like trying not to think about while I'm reading for pleasure. And like sometimes just reading like and just looking at the structure of something that's really well done and being like, oh, this is how this joke is constructed or this is how like the kicker at the end of the story is written or whatever can be really helpful. But yeah, one of the things that I've, I told some incoming students recently was like, just spend the summer before you come in reading everything you want to read. Cause you're not going to have time for the next two years. <laughs> um, and it'll kind of keep you going. Yeah. That's good advice. Um, well, let's talk about the MFA program a little bit. The MFA program at Brooklyn college is a two-year program in creative writing with tracks in fiction, poetry, and playwriting. The school is part of the CUNY system, and it's a pretty big program with, according to the website, about 30 students in just the fiction program at any one time. You told me you were really on the fence about whether or not to apply to MFA programs. So where did the hesitation come from, and what made you finally decide to go for it? Well, first of all, the there's about... 13 people in each cohort. So altogether, it's about 30 or a little less. And 
Yeah. I always thought, I mean, I've always loved writing and I always thought I might do an MFA, but I really wasn't sure after college. I knew I wanted some time after undergrad to kind of not be in school. And I took, I guess I took four years and I was freelancing and I was living in New York. And then I decided that I wanted to try being an adult somewhere that wasn't New York because I'd done undergrad here. So I, I quit my job and I moved to Hawaii. Um, and I was living on like a communal farm and working as a car mechanic and freelancing. And I was like, now would be a good time to do like a practice round. I was like <laughs> very non-committal. I was like, okay, I can, I don't know if I can commit to this, but I can try doing a practice round of applying to MFA programs and just kind of get myself together and like see how it goes. So I applied to four of like the top funded programs. Um, and I remember still feeling extremely conflicted about whether that was something I wanted to do. And between the time I applied and the time I heard back, I decided that like I loved living in Hawaii, but it wasn't quite right for me in like a long-term way. And I was really missing New York. And the idea of like going, moving, you know, anywhere, I had no idea where if I got into these programs, I'd be living for two years really wasn't appealing to me anymore. And then I ended up not getting into any of them. And I, I remember feeling like a little bit disappointed, but also kind of relieved. So I moved back to New York. And um, by the time the applications rolled around again, I wasn't really planning on applying anywhere. And then I woke up one morning, like two days before the Brooklyn College application was due. And I was just like, I have to apply to this program. Like, I, don't, I have no idea why, but I was just like, I got to apply. Um, I can keep my whole life here, which was really nice. Like I can keep writing nonfiction. I can keep my friends. I can stay in my apartment, but I can like enhance it with this opportunity to really focus on fiction. So I applied and I got in and that was right before the pandemic. Yeah, I was really excited. It, it was like I'd gotten to a point where I felt very stuck in my fiction and it felt like a good time to try to introduce some other sort of inspiration or structure. And it ended up being really amazing timing because then the pandemic hit it, and all of CUNY shut down the day I was supposed to visit the campus. So I'd never seen the campus and we were on Zoom for the first year, fully on Zoom. Um, and I, my partner at the time and I had gone out west. We were fully remote and we were like rock climbing and staying in Airbnbs and I was zooming into classes and it was so amazing to have like this cohort of people who were all new friends and who really wanted to connect and who were also sitting at home and like sad and scared and bored and all those things. Um yeah, and it, I mean it's not like an ideal. It wasn't an ideal way to do the program. I'm sure you also experienced that, but it was such a lifeline to have 13 new friends who were like very active on WhatsApp who wanted to talk about writing um, and who were reading the same things I was reading. It was really, it really worked out perfectly in a lot of ways, I think. So you think it was a good decision in the end? Yeah. I'm so glad I did it. I have no regrets. I loved it so much. Well, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the hesitation though. I mean, you, I know you had already published quite a bit of nonfiction before you entered the program. So I guess I'm just curious to hear like what your thought process was and how you thought about whether or not the program would be worthwhile or what that even means for the, an MFA program to be worthwhile for someone. Yeah. I mean, I knew I didn't want to do a program where I would take on a lot of debt. Um, that really wouldn't be worthwhile. I took on undergrad loans and I'd finished paying them off and I was like, I really, really don't want to do that again. So that was a big thing. I knew I didn't want a competitive program. I wanted like a really supportive environment. I didn't think I'd do well um, trying to produce creative work when there was like a lot of pressure and competition. But yeah, I think I was a little hesitant because I felt like I had 
I was kind of finding my way very newly in the publishing nonfiction world. And I wasn't sure if like becoming more insular and working on maybe longer projects or like some sort of novel draft or something that's going to take a lot longer, um, if that would be like a good move or if I should just really try to move like full steam ahead with nonfiction. And I think ultimately it really ended up enhancing my nonfiction and just the way I look at writing and being a writer in general. But yeah, I think, I don't know, there's, everyone has a different opinion and everyone shares their opinion about whether or not an MFA <laughs> is worthwhile right. with you. And I had a lot of people who, I have one, you know, very good friend who's a really successful journalist and writer. And he was just like, there's nothing you need in a program. Like you have everything you need, just like go forth. And I listened to him for a while. And then I was like, no, I'm really curious about this other thing where I can kind of just concentrate on fiction and be in a bubble for two years and see where that takes me and see if it helps me feel a little bit less stuck with fiction or, you know, decode or demystify fiction a little bit more. I think timing is a big part of it too. Um, I think, you know, of course it's different for every person, but also I think that maybe, I think timing plays a big part in whether people have like positive or negative experiences with an MFA. For me, it was like, if I'd have gone into an MFA program at like 23 or 24, like right out of undergrad, I don't think I would have had as good of an experience as I've had now. Uh, Coming back to it later, I had to get out in the world and like experience it a bit before I would, you know, could really take advantage of this opportunity. And that's just like not something that, you know, like you said, everyone wants to give their advice, but it's really not something that you can like figure out for another person. Like you just have to try to figure it out for yourself. Right. And, and it seems like maybe that's something you were wrestling with, like the timing of it. Is this the right time for me to do it? And you feel like it was in the end? Yeah, I think the first, my first round when I applied, it really wasn't. And I wasn't at a place where I really needed it yet. And then by the time I applied for the second round, I really, really was like, I feel very stuck. And I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't know how to be a writer. And like, I could really use some camaraderie and some structure and like a little bit of inspiration, I guess. Um, And it just felt like I didn't know what else was the right thing. So I was like, all right, we're just going to try this. But yeah, I'm really glad I didn't do it straight out of undergrad. I think that would have been I think that's definitely the right decision for some people. It wouldn't have been the right decision for me at all. I was really excited to be out in the world and to work and to travel and, you know, build a community and make friends and see what I could do on my own for a while. Although I am really jealous of the, my classmates who are like 25 and are (laughs) as as good at this as I am. I'm like, Oh my God, if I had an extra 10 years to work with, that would be awesome. Yeah. That'd be so nice. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned the idea of like wanting to demystify fiction a bit through the program. I was going to ask because you had all this experience with nonfiction, what made you decide to focus on fiction in the MFA program? I mean, I love, like, I love reading fiction. I've always found that it feels like when it's going well, at least definitely not when it's not going well, but when it's going well and I get to write fiction, it feels like going to like the best amusement park, you know, and just like getting to ride the rides and being like, this is so fun. And like anything can happen. I think a lot about, you know, that Ira Glass quote about um, the gap between what you're trying to create and where you are. And how like you just have to keep practicing something until you can close that gap and it takes a really, really long time. But if you don't give up, eventually, hopefully that gap will close between what you're trying to create and what you are creating. And I feel like I was kind of at a point where I was like, I'm either going to give up because that gap is so big 
or I'm going to try to do something to close that gap a little bit and see if I can make some progress. But it's like getting too depressing to stay where I am and just see that the hugeness of that gap looming in front of me. And I mean, I think that that gap probably exists for your whole life in some sense, and it probably changes. But I definitely feel like I understand a little bit more like what I'm trying to do. If I'm even though I'm nowhere near doing it, you know, I'm like, okay, I can kind of see where I would like to go with this. I think that's one thing that an MFA program can really do well for people is narrow that gap kind of quickly, right? It's like an accelerant, like you could do it on your own, like you could by reading and writing, just like getting a library card, you could eventually close that gap on your own. Right. But there's something about the MFA environment being thrown in with a bunch of other people who are trying to close that gap as well. And, and being able to interact with professors who are doing it for a living, who have already gone through that and yeah. figured something out, right? Somehow, I, I feel like it, it accelerates that process a little bit. Totally. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's not, the MFA program is not going to make you like a successful novelist, right? But it will kind of, I think, close that gap more quickly. Yeah, I think so. Hopefully. I think it's also really nice to work with professors who know, like they can see what you're trying to do and hopefully expedite that a little bit. But I think just having that experience of having worked with so many different people who are all trying to do the same thing, even if it's a very different thing they're trying to do, can be really great. Yeah. And of course, there are lots of variables that can get in the way of that. Um, but yeah, even if like the professors that you're working with aren't doing exactly what you're doing, seeing like all of these different ways of writing and all of these different processes and hearing all these stories about what other writers had to go through to get to where they are now. I found really helpful in my program. I don't know if it was the same for you. Yeah, I think it's super helpful. Yeah, some of the best teachers I've had have done things that are very different than what I'm trying to do. But I think they've been really good teachers because they've been able to figure out how to help me get from point A to point B, or at least how to consider point B so that I can maybe try to map a way to eventually get there. Um, and that's one of the things that's been really helpful in the program is having people who are able to be like, oh, this is really different than what I do but I can see where you're trying to go and I can kind of try to help you get there. So having like turned your focus towards fiction the last couple of years, how do you think that's affected your nonfiction? Like, have you still been able to write nonfiction while you're in the program? And if so, how have you seen the fiction influencing your nonfiction and vice versa? I have still been able to write nonfiction and publish some nonfiction. Um, it's definitely taken a backseat, especially this past year which has felt fine and good. Um, There are a couple essays that I have that I'd like to write that I have in my mind or that I have notes for. But I actually, because I like to have something happen and then give it a lot of space between writing, like between it happening and writing about it, in some ways it's actually worked really well. Like, I, my, I've been, my sister who I live with has, has been like, please stop telling people about this. No one's going to want to visit. But back in September, I got scabies, which I had no idea what it was. And I thought I was just having like an allergic reaction to something. Um, and because I didn't realize it was a thing that had to be treated and I thought I was just like stressed and having a stress rash, it went on for a very long time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and I've been like, Oh, I think at some point I will probably write an essay about this because it was such an uncomfortable, ridiculous experience. And I happened to be at a wedding with my then partner's family. And like, we had to, you know, (laughs) leave the ceremony three times to apply topical Benadryl all over my body. And it was like a whole thing. 
But so like when I was in that, I was like, okay, I'm in, I'm in agony. I'm going to take some notes. And I assume at some point I'll probably want to write about this, even though right. a lot of people are telling me not to, because they don't think <laughs> I want to be the face of scabies. Um, but I feel like I need time because I need like an essay only works. You could have an amusing premise, but it only works if there's like some sort of takeaway or some larger thing that you're saying. And I don't know what that thing is yet. And you know, I'm like, I don't know if this is gonna be an essay about scabies and capitalism or like scabies and heartbreak, <laughs> but like there needs to be something weightier there, right? For right. it to really work. And I've been too busy to write it anyway. So I think in some ways it's really it's worked really well because having this program is like I have a lot of things I want to write about that are nonfiction, but I haven't had the time and it's giving it time to kind of brew. And I I'm really excited to spend the summer kind of getting back into all of those things. Well, I wish I could be in the room when you tell your sister you brought up the scaby story on the podcast. <laughs> She's going to be so mad. <laughs> She's very supportive. I think it'll be okay. <laughs> okay That's awesome. Well, um, you mentioned earlier in the interview that novel writing workshop that they offer at Brooklyn College. I want to talk about that a little bit. According to the website, the program typically offers two traditional short fiction workshops and one novel writing workshop each semester. And the novel writing one sounds like pretty unique. That's not something I see at a lot of programs. So what was that experience like? I think that's one of the things the program does really well and is super unique where a lot of times people will be workshopping a novel in an MFA program and they'll bring it to a short story workshop and be like, here's 20 pages. Let's talk about it. And I've never seen it go super well. I'm sure it has at times, but I feel like you end up spending so much time explaining what's going to happen later that you don't, you can't really deal with the whole novel as a concept. This class is really cool. It's taught by Ernesto Mestre, who's brilliant. And um, he's been teaching this class for a long time. And a, a lot of the novels he's worked on in this class have gone on to be published, which is really cool. Um, and whenever one of them is, he texts the group and he's like, this book in the, you know, in the New York Times started in the novel workshop, like keep on working on your projects. But the thing that's really cool is that you can bring in a full manuscript. So people will bring in 300 pages and we will read 300 pages and workshop that. Um, and if you don't have 300 pages, you can bring in whatever you have and, you know, we'll work with that. But I mean, there was one person who you, you're up for submission twice and she brought in a 300 page draft of a novel and then she brought in a second full novel draft for her second workshop. So like you can really make it whatever you want. And if you don't have a full novel draft, like I came in with, I think, 120 pages for my first submission. And then I added another 60 for my second. Um, but Ernesto's really good at figuring out like what the beating heart of the story is and how to pull that out and expand on that and like where you might go from there. And I just think it's, yeah, I think it's really cool. I think it's a really cool opportunity. And I kind of went in being like, I don't, know if this is a book I want to publish. I'd like to show myself that I can finish it. And I'd like to watch other people work on longer projects and figure out like how to write a novel. Like my goal is not to come out with a novel. It's to come out with a better understanding of how to write a long project. Well, I feel like the, the workshop, the traditional workshop is kind of designed for short story writers more than novelists. So, it, so it's really cool to hear that Brooklyn college is um, offering this, novel writing workshop that seems to be pushing the boundaries of what the workshop can do. I mean, there's been a lot of talk recently about the traditional workshop versus like more modern forms of the workshop. Have you felt in your time at Brooklyn College that like there's some work going into expanding what the workshop can do? Yeah. So every workshop I've taken at Brooklyn College has been really different. And um, 
that's been really fun and interesting. Helen Phillips, who wrote The Need, is one of the, she's on faculty and she did the, she probably taught the most experimental workshop that I took while I was there. And it was really cool. I think she'd read, I know there are a couple books that have come out lately, like Craft in the Real World. And yeah, and they're all about how to make, you know, how to break down the more traditional format that doesn't benefit everyone. And so she brought a couple really cool things where I think that, I think this has changed even since I took this workshop. I think she taught it differently this last semester, but we were all on Zoom. This was my second semester and we could choose how we wanted people to workshop our work. So we could be like, I'm going to lead the discussion or I'm not going to lead the discussion or I want everyone to draw my story. So like for one person, she was like, I'd like everyone to just spend 10 minutes with crayons drawing the story. And it was really interesting. People came back with some really similar things, like structurally, you know, abstract renderings of what the story meant to them. And then we dissected them. And she was like, that was really, really helpful. We could have done a dance. Like there was the option to have someone do a dance in response to your story. There were like a lot of different options. You could choose whatever you wanted or what you thought would be most helpful. And then typically you send in, like everyone in the workshop writes you a letter about your story um, in response at the end in like a traditional workshop. And we had the option to either do that or we could do a creative response. Um, and a creative response could be like, you write the scene that you think is missing from the story, or you write fan fiction, or you write like a letter from one of the characters. And some of the, like, I think there was one person in my workshop who wrote a fan fiction scene for one of the stories I turned in. And it was so helpful. It was like, it totally changed the way I was looking at the story and the way I worked on revisions. So I loved it. Yeah, I think it's really cool. And I love that people are out there trying to change this very traditional structure that's been in place for so long. Well, I mentioned earlier that the program's fairly big. So I'm curious if you felt like um, the professors in the program have been available and supportive to you. Yeah, I think that's like one of the things that's really special about the program. I feel kind of gross. I'm just like, yeah, I just love this program so (laughs) much. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, I have friends who've gone to programs where they're like, I could not get in touch with my advisor or, you know, it was 20 emails before I could get a response. And the professors at Brooklyn College are like on top of it. I feel like if you don't, if you're not reaching out to set up like your thesis meetings, they're like reaching out to be like, hey, when are you free? Some of them will read work outside of workshop or like over the summer or they'll be like, hey, why don't you turn in the next draft of the story over winter break so we can discuss it? So just like so generous, so sweet. Um I think they really care and I've been like really shocked by how much, I don't know how they have the time to be so there for all of the students, but my experience of it has been like, they're extremely generous with their time and extremely supportive and they really care. That's great. And what about the sense of community amongst your cohort? You mentioned that like you were navigating the pandemic while in the program. So that makes it harder, but have you felt like you've been able to, develop some good relationships with the other students in your program? Yeah. Um, I think I mentioned our very active WhatsApp thread um, at the beginning of the pandemic when we really weren't able to meet in person. And then we did a lot of like picnics in the park and things outside before vaccines were out. And then I think once everyone is vaccinated, we were trying to figure out a way to like do some expedited bonding. Um, so we, (laughs) we rented a house in the Poconos for a weekend and we all drove to Pennsylvania and 
you know, there were 13 of us in this like three bedroom house, um, just like hanging out and grilling and going for hikes. We went on like an infamous 12 hour hike that (laughs) (laughs) we couldn't get off of. Um, yeah, it was super fun. It was great. Um, so I feel like we've definitely been able to figure out how to do that. And I definitely have friends who I think I will be friends with for a really long time. And then another, I don't know if other programs do this, but we have bar nights on Thursday nights after workshop gets out because everyone has workshop on Thursdays. And we all know that we're just going to this bar where we are every Thursday. Um, And that's been super fun now that we're all in person again and we can do that. And people hang out a lot outside of the program. We had like three birthday parties this last weekend. It was like a birthday party marathon. Um, And everyone was there. You know, a lot of people were there and it was really fun. So I definitely feel like there's been a sense of community. And I'm sure it's different than, you know, a program where it's a very small town and no one's working. Like there's a lot of other stuff going on, but I feel like we do a pretty good job considering how busy everyone is. Yeah. I was going to, I was curious about that because, you know, you had mentioned earlier that a lot of people are working while they're in the program. So doing the program, taking the classes, doing your writing and working outside of that, it's a lot, you know, it takes up a lot of your time. So how have you navigated that? Yeah, people are, people are busy. We have different events that like happen monthly that a group of us will go to. And that'll be something that we kind of know, or there's like, you know, some book launch or something and we'll get in touch with each other. There are a lot of people who are working full time and they say that it's, you know, manageable and doable, but I think it's probably a lot. I, since I'm doing freelance, I do copywriting and a bunch of other things, freelance work, and I'm kind of able to take on more or less depending on how demanding the school load is. But yeah, it's definitely something everyone has to kind of figure out for themselves and figure out if that's like the right structure for them. And there's also part of the the way the funding works is a lot of people, it's different for, I think everyone gets different funding, but, um, and it changes year to year, but everyone is offered a teaching fellowship that will cover tuition for the second year of the program. So if you want to teach English comp, you can take a pedagogy class and then you can teach for, you're guaranteed a certain number of time. And I think there's like an optional, maybe an optional third year. So there are people also who are doing that, who took that as part of their package. So everyone has different things going on, but I think everyone is pretty committed to creating some sort of community and knowing that like, that's one of the things that people say is very important to take out of an MFA program. Right. And when you're, when it's not a fully funded program, then, you know, like sometimes those things are a little bit more difficult to navigate, but it sounds like you all have, you know, still created a pretty good community in spite of that. I'm curious to talk a little bit more about funding because that's cool that like they, there are teaching opportunities for everyone in the second year. If you accept those teaching fellowships, are you getting like a stipend plus tuition reimbursement or is it just a stipend? Do you know how that works? If you accept the teaching fellowship, you're getting paid directly. It's going into your bank account. So, you know, you can use it to reimburse yourself, but um, and I'm not exactly sure the, I think the amount you get paid has changed slightly year to year. So I'm not exactly sure where it's at, but I think it's roughly equal to what the tuition is a little bit more. Like I received a fellowship that covered my first year plus a little bit more from the Capote foundation. So I didn't have to worry about it for the first year. And then, and I took the pedagogy class I thought I would teach. And I realized that the jobs that I was doing freelance, I was making more than I would be teaching. So I decided to keep doing that. And I'm, you know, it was a hard decision. I'm sad about it 
sometimes too. But I think teaching is a really good, like a really big commitment. And um, I wanted more time to write and to focus on the other projects I was doing. How many other fellowships, the Truman Capote Fellowship, you mentioned you got that. Are there other fellowship opportunities, scholarships, things like that to offset um, the tuition costs? Yeah, there are. I don't know the names of all of them. And it's not like something that's public and we haven't, like we don't discuss it a lot. So I'm not sure what, um, what scholarships or fellowships other people have gotten. I think they try to make it pretty even. I think they try to send everyone something. And I think if you're coming from out of state, that might be a little different because it's a CUNY school and the tuition changes if you're in state or not. I know everyone is in state for the second year. So you'll, that's the tuition. But my understanding is that the funding Brooklyn College gets changes year to year and they do their best to hopefully help everyone out. But I don't think there are like any, I don't think there are any guarantees going in. I think they'll tell you what they can do once they know, once you've been accepted. Cool. So just something for listeners to keep in mind if you're applying, it's probably worth reaching out to the program, seeing if you can get in touch with someone and seeing what kind of funding might be available in the coming year and whether it makes sense for you or not. Yeah, definitely. Well, before we go, I want to give you the last word. What's one thing that you think the program does really well? And what's one way you think they could improve? One of my favorite things about the program is this craft class that Josh, the program director, teaches. And it's mandatory and everyone takes it their first year. It's like it's kind of between a reading class and a workshop. And every week you're assigned between like six and 13 short stories that are published by usually pretty famous authors and it's divided by some sort of theme. Like we're going to read these six stories and we're going to talk about how time is handled or how, um, you know, plot is handled, or this is like a sandwich story, or these are all stories told from a child's point of view. And it kind of gives everyone a shared framework moving forward in workshops where if like something's not working, we can be like, well, how did, you know, Monroe do it in X story? I feel like there are problems that come up again and again when you're writing short stories and, Being able to look at how different writers have addressed them and have succeeded or have failed in a context that is not your story or your classmate's story is really helpful. And then when you're trying to solve that problem in a workshop the next semester and it's your story, it's really helpful to be able to look back and everyone's read the same stories and been like, well, Monroe did this and that was how she did it. And Bausch did this and that was how he did it. And it's really cool to have some sort of a shared canon that everyone in the program can refer to when they're in workshop going forward. So I didn't even know about that class going in. And it was a class that really made a lot of things click for me. And I think it's a class that I'll probably think about a lot post MFA when I'm trying to make stories work and trying to figure out why they're not working. Um, So I think that's something that makes Brooklyn College's program really special. In terms of things that it can improve, I don't think this is going to change. And I think this is a double-edged sword, as I've already said, but it can be hard to work while you're in a program. And I think if you're going to do that, you should, you know, have a plan and like figure out how that's going to work and try to frame it in the sense that like, you're going to figure out how to be a writer while doing other things in your life. And this is two years where you're going to have to figure that out. And hopefully some of what you figure out, you can use going forward in your life as a writer. Well, Luna, this has been so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much for coming by and chatting with me. Yeah, I had a blast. Thank you.